From the Clark Ford Studio in Oxford, Mississippi, MVW Digital proudly presents the Oxford Exxon Podcast. I'd say thanks for tuning in, but why am I going to give you a round of applause for something you're supposed to do, to be frank? And now, here are your hosts, Chase Parm. And broadcast school has really paid off. And Neil McCready. I deserve to be on TV. Welcome to another edition of the Oxford Exxon Podcast. It is Tuesday, June the 9th. Hope you are having a good day. A little late show on uh, this Tuesday. I just spent an hour and 11 minutes with Tommy Joe Martins of the uh, NASCAR Xfinity Series. He is a uh, Como, Mississippi native. We had a lot of fun. It's one of the most fun interviews I've done in a long time. I think you guys will really enjoy it. We talked about some serious stuff. We talked about the Mississippi State flag. Tommy Joe, as you probably know, has been an advocate for the Stennis flag for a few years now. He sort of talks about the genesis of that advocacy. Uh, we also talk about uh, a little bit about NASCAR's perception. He tweeted about it yesterday, about the perception of NASCAR out there as it pertains to African Americans, as it pertains to uh, racial stigma and some of that stuff. We talk about that a little bit. We talk about uh, the return to racing, racing without crowds, what that's been like for him with uh, all of the COVID prevention uh, steps that NASCAR has taken. And then uh, we talk about some fun stuff. We took some questions from rebelgrove.com, some serious, some not so serious, and uh, he couldn't have been better. You'll really enjoy the interview, I think, when we get to it. So uh, we'll get to that in just a minute. First, let me tell you about the Oxford Exxon Highway 6 West in Oxford Download the Speed Pass Plus app on your phone. You can fill up touchless there at the Oxford Exxon. You can also go inside, of course. Great beer selection, ribs, uh, plate lunches, uh, soda, snacks, everything. It's always clean, always a great place to stop on your way into Oxford, on your way out of Oxford. And, of course, if you live around Oxford, why would you go anyplace else? It's on Highway 6 West in Oxford. It is right next door of course, to the Oxford Crystal, where you can get uh, drive through You can also get delivery, Uber Eats, Grubhub, Waiter, DoorDash. That's all there at Crystal. They have the new Hangover Crystal, bacon, egg, and cheese crystal with fresh cracked eggs. It's $1.69, and it's available all day. They also have the peach slushy as we start getting hot. Crave and, sla- crave and save peach slushy. There at the Oxford Crystal, they also have the new banana pudding shake. It's not for me, as you well know, but it is for a lot of you who don't have the uh, weird aversion to bananas that I have. It's nice and cool and refreshing on these hot days. And, of course, they still have the best uh, breakfast around. I'm having a hard time talking today. The new fresh cracked egg biscuits, bacon, egg, and cheese biscuit, sausage, egg, and cheese biscuit using fresh cracked eggs, the scrambler breakfast bowls, and then, of course, the new Nashville Hot Chick, which can be part of your pick five for five fifty-five at the Oxford Crystal. They use 100% all white meat chicken breast on the Nashville Hot Chick. I'm coming to you from the Clark Ford Studios. Clark Ford's in Amory, Mississippi, 662-257-1900 is that number. Call it. Ask for Corey Clark. Tell Corey what Ford product you're looking for. He'll send you a quote within 15 minutes in business hours. Right to the bottom line, no hassle, no haggle. You get your quote, and the rest is completely up to you. You can shop that quote around, of course. That's your prerogative. Or you can do what I've done, and that's hop into a Clark Ford today. You'll love the product. 
You'll love the service after the sale. Corey really wants to be your car guy. He really wants to be your truck guy. People say, what does that mean? Make the call and you'll start to find out for yourself. 662-257-1900. We're also brought to you by Blue Delta Jeans. Uh, Blue Delta Jeans is uh, very pleased to announce that the studio is back open Monday through Saturday from 10 to 6. If you've got jeans to pick up or if you're just ready to get measured for your own Blue Delta jeans, don't hesitate to drop by or reach out to Blue Delta to schedule an appointment. And while you're in, don't forget to check out Blue Delta's new line of Georgia milled duck canvas fabrics. They're strong and durable, and these are the ultimate made-to-last pants. Info at BlueDeltaJeans.com, on social media at Blue Delta Jeans. Whichever way is easier for you, give the Blue Delta Jeans team a shout, and they will be glad to see you. Tommy Joe Martins and all guests join us on the Rafters Music and Food Hotline. Rafters on the Water is open. It's located at the Sardis Marina. So come experience outdoor dining unlike any place in North Mississippi. The menu offers shrimp and Mississippi catfish platters along with gourmet burgers, Louisiana-style po'boys served on Leidenheimer French bread. Wednesday through Thursday, 3.30 to 10, Friday through Sunday, 11 a.m. to 10 p.m. Newly expanded picnic-style dining areas are around there. They also have signature appetizers, including Zydeco shrimp, crawfish egg rolls. Live music is uh, on the weekends as well, so come out and enjoy. Try one of their new fun cocktails, including their famous house frozen margaritas as well. If you're not quite ready to do that, but you want to try the food, you can do that too. They have to-go options, curbside pickup available, 662-712-6162. Now to the Rafters Music and Food Hotline and Tommy Joe Martins. Tommy Joe Martin's kind enough to uh, spend some time with us on the podcast. This is uh, it's fun to see you, to talk to you. How you been? Uh, doing pretty good. Uh, spending a little time back in Mississippi right now, Neil, so it's good to talk to you. So you were in Atlanta over the weekend, right? You guys, uh, if, if I saw correctly, you you ran 21st, 22nd in, in Xfinity yeah, 20, Series? Yeah, 22nd. Yeah, 22nd. It was, uh, honestly, it, it could have been a lot worse. <laughs> uh, we, had a little, we had a little bit of a driver problem. Uh, in Atlanta, or I spun the car out early in the race, and we got a little bit of damage, and fell all the way back to about 33rd, and got all the way back up to 16th, and then finally finished uh, 20 seconds. So it was an up and down day, to say the least. So I was telling you before we got started, Jennifer Iyer covers NASCAR for the Associated Press, covers auto racing, really, not just NASCAR for the Associated Press. She and I were talking, I don't, this pandemic's been going on for, what, 10, 11 years? You lose track of time on, on when it started and where we are, and it feels like forever, but we're not even halfway through 2020 yet, which is a sobering thought. But regardless, we were talking at some point back before you guys, meaning the NASCAR circuits, had gotten back on the tracks, and she was saying, you know, with the exception of a couple of the big teams, and maybe even including the really big teams, if they don't get back on the track and start racing soon, financially they just can't make it work. I know you've uh, you're in the ownership aspect of this as well now. T- take me through those times. What was that like when uh, I know you when you were probably laying out your business plan for 2020? You weren't thinking about pandemics that would shut you down for months. Uh, definitely not, and it has changed our business as well. You know, initially uh, when all this happened, uh, my first thought. We actually went to Atlanta Motor Speedway. It's funny, we're coming back from Atlanta Motor Speedway, but when all this first happened is when we went to Atlanta Motor Speedway uh, with the intent on racing, and they kind of held us out of the garage where they said, okay, wait a minute, we're not sure how to approach this. 
And literally, we were all kind of sitting outside the gate waiting, and they said, no, everybody go home and cancel the weekend. And uh, when that happened, I said, okay, this is going to be, this is obviously going to be something that affects our business. And it wound up, like a lot of businesses, we had to furlough employees uh, for a time. Uh, We only really had one person that kind of stayed with us full time throughout the pandemic. And he was able, it's our crew chief, uh, Daniel Johnson, who was able to get a lot of stuff done around the shop, but we had to lay everyone else off. And so this is something that affected, you know, every business, not, you know, not just racing, not just sports, but like so many people in this country um, were affected by it. And now it's changed our business going forward where NASCAR, as they've, they've started opening up these races again, uh, one of the reasons I've gotten to be in Mississippi now for a few months is because all of our races in the comeback have been kind of down here in the southeast. So I've, yeah. I've spent time uh, with my family. I've driven to all the races uh, because they've been you know, within reasonable driving distance. Uh, and now in Miami, which is our race that we've got coming up, that'll be the first one that I actually fly to. Uh, you know, 14 hours. Yeah, I don't feel like <laughs> I don't feel like doing that one. But no. but it's, it's kind of been this slow stair step thing. Um, and really, you know, these are pl- like speaking of from business side here, Neil. Uh, these were races that we had a lot of travel plans for, right? Flying crew uh, to the races and transporter costs and all that. And so, in a way, it's like dramatic cost for us because NASCAR has tried to kind of tailor a little bit differently to try to keep us a little closer to home, not have to be on the road as much, not have to spend as much money as we're first coming back because they understand it, it economically, it kind of affected the teams. And you guys are kind of running, not skeleton team, but it's it's way pared back, right? I mean, how, how, how different now is just race day? We'll talk about racing without fans in a minute, but just the actual mechanics of race day, if you will, how is it different today than it was this time a year ago? Uh, we've scaled back the crews quite a bit in our series. It was a small scale back, um, for the cup series teams for, for the top level teams. It was a big scale back. Uh, they probably have 20 to 25 people at a racetrack with them. Um, and they got cut down to like 10. Uh, so more than half, of uh, our series, I think they allow us to have 10. Uh, my team, we're a little bit of a smaller team. We would only be bringing six or seven people anyway. Uh, so it didn't affect us as much as some of the bigger teams in my series where they definitely had to scale back quite a bit. And the procedures of race day uh, for me as a driver, kind of being around uh, the racetrack, practice, qualifying the race. Well, we only have one of those now. Uh, They got rid of practice. They got rid of qualifying to try to keep us there less. Uh, And they basically want the drivers almost segregated from the rest of the crews in case Let's say somebody on my team wound up with COVID-19. If I was just like hanging around in the pits, well, they would immediately have to probably suspend me as well. So they, they want to keep the drivers separate. So it's a really weird, <laughs> almost lonely race day. Yeah. Uh, and that's that's made for a change in my routine. But at the same time, it's, it's really shortened our schedule and allowed the guys to operate quite really not as frantically. It's, it's a probably kind of slowed down the pace at the track. And then we still have the race to look forward to. Socially, has it changed what you do, you know, when you're away from the track? And I know when you're at the track, it's a busy time and you're pretty much consumed with all of that. But you're not there 24-7. Has it changed what you do when you're not at the track? Uh, Really, a lot of the interaction that I probably would have had with fans or that kind of stuff where it's an autograph signing. It's, you know, meeting people that are coming through the garage and want to sign something or, uh, 
maybe podcasts yeah. <laughs> or a radio interview or something that I'd be doing in a local market. You know, that's something that we're just not doing now. So it's a uh, it's a lot more time uh, by yourself. I mean, really, I mean, we're doing this podcast here, right? We're doing it on Skype. That's basically how you're having to do everything right now. So it, it's changed quite a bit of the interactions there. And, and I've tried to not, like, I'm not going to sit here and act like I just do not go out to eat, but I am trying to be smarter about it because I understand kind of my importance to the team here. Like if I showed up and, and NASCAR tested me and I was positive and all of a sudden it's two hours before a race and we got to find a replacement driver, that's not great. So I have, I have kind of a higher responsibility level. So I'm trying to be a little smarter with like, going and getting takeout from a place that I like versus going in there and sitting down. When you talk to other drivers, whether it's on your circuit or, or the ARCA circuit or the cup circuit, are, are guys irritated with this? Or are they just happy to be back at the race? Are they concerned about COVID-19? I mean, I, I don't know about like my, my house, for example, we we're done with it. We're just like, whatever. It, it, we're, we're no longer even talking about it. It's, it's, it's traumatic for the kids. My, my daughter wanted to go back and visit some friends. I'm like, go see ya. Uh, the other one wanted to go to a party. We're like, go have have fun. Let us know where you're coming home. All that stuff. What what is it like among all the the guys that you're used to, teams and that kind of thing? How much is it a topic of conversation, and how much is it just a damned irritant at this point? Yeah, I think at first it was this hypersensitivity to it, um, and NASCAR put a lot of rules in place for us at the track when it came to wearing masks and social distancing and the six feet rule and, and all the different things that we did in like a technical inspection, pushing the car around and making sure that only a few people were doing it. So there was a lot of that. Um, I would say that now, uh, while we're still taking it seriously, yeah, you can, you can tell kind of the, the sensitivity to it has obviously been toned down a little bit. I, I think we all realize now um, because we're also getting screened, right? Like when we're coming into the track, you're not allowed into the track unless you go through a screening. So we all kind of know that everybody in there is probably not infected. So that kind of dials it back a little bit, but, but we're still following all the guidelines and everything there. So, so in my life personally, I'm seeing this every weekend and then I'm traveling as well. Like I'm going to start flying. So that's going to be a part of my life. So it, yeah, it's probably affecting me <laughs> and, and all the, the stuff that I'm having to do probably more than the average person. And believe me, everybody's tired of it. Uh, not not just you and your family. I'm tired of it too. Yeah, I, th- I think that's becoming pretty common. What is it like racing without fans? I mean, I you, you probably haven't done that. I know you do <laughs> trial runs and stuff, and you do you know time trials and stuff a lot. And there aren't many fans there or any fans there, but race day i'm guessing you've always gotten a little adrenaline kick from the fans that are in the stadium and stuff like that and now the the, i I was watching i guess some of the uh some of the atlanta race or maybe it was the one the week before that and and it was just so empty and it was so weird to see just the the whole you know i guess the the front stretch you know the the main part of the race that you see you know the grandstand and all that stuff and there's nobody in it it was just bizarre yeah it's the the quiet moments that are the weird ones. It's like eerie in a way, you know, cause we're not sitting in the car. It's not, we're different than other sports, right? Where that, the crowd noise isn't affecting me as I'm sitting in the race car. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're not, hearing, you're hearing cars and you're concentrating on what you're doing and, and yeah, 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 sure. So that's not there, but, but it's the moments, the before and the after moments, um, that have made this so strange and, uh, the changing in the schedule and okay, we get done like the time, 
like the times that I hear the loudest cheers for me as the driver is like national anthem and the gentlemen start your engines and you're there and you do like maybe a parade lap where you kind of wave into the fans or whatever. And so that's when you're kind of really getting the, the scale of everything. And now that's just gone. It's literally like national anthem and then silence. <laughs> And then you kind of look it around, and there's maybe like, you know, NASCAR only allows maybe one guy to be with you right there by the car. And so there's not even like the team high five. There's nothing. It's just like, all right, I guess I'm getting the car now. <laughs> so that's a little that's a little strange, and that's going to be good. Uh, I think NASCAR just announced today, actually, now that we're talking about this, this happened an hour ago, where they're going to start allowing fans back in very small numbers, under 5,000 fans at a few of the races coming up. So it's it's... Look, we're getting back to normal here, slowly but surely. And I promise you, 5,000 fans is going to feel like 50,000 compared to what we've been used to the last few weeks. Yeah, and that's a very loyal fan base, NASCAR fans are. I mean, those are people that, you know, those are those are big events when you're in, I don't know, Darlington or wherever. When, when the circuit comes to your, your track, that's a big deal. You're excited. And so, you know, for those people, it's going to be – those that are fortunate enough to get in to, to the stadiums. I, I know in Texas, it's, what is it now, 25% capacity they're allowing yeah, and, so, yeah. and stuff like that. So, you know, for a lot of those people, you guys are, are providing a, 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 not even entertainment as much as almost like a therapy, really. People can, can start getting aspects of life that they're used to back. Well, you start talking about social distancing, right? And, th- and that being such a big aspect of this is we're kind of coming back to normal, especially when we start getting to bigger events, right? Like Ole Miss football game, NASCAR race, Grizzly game, whatever it is. Uh, the idea of an 18,000 seat arena and a 25% capacity rule, or the idea of, in the case of like Texas Motor Speedway, like you're talking about, it's literally a 100,000 seat arena. It's massive. Yeah. 25,000 people and people would immediately like people that wouldn't know any better would immediately look at that and go 25,000 people in one place. Oh my God, this is terrible. I promise 25,000 people at Texas motor speedway. You wouldn't have to be within 50 yards of anyone. <laughs> if you didn't want to, <laughs> yeah. like you got plenty of room or Talladega or something like you would have plenty of room. You could spread out. So I think we're, we're going to be a little common sense about this as we're kind of scaling it back. Vanderbilt football has been socially distancing for years. Oh, I mean, yeah. you know, I mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. look, Rebel Games, if we're down at halftime, it's, you look at the student section, they've been social distancing for a long time. Yeah, there's been, a, yeah, the last few years, there's been plenty of social distancing at Vaught Hemingway. No one, no one used the term, but if, if Ole Miss had to do it, they're, they're more than prepared. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I, I, I opened up to some questions on, on rebelgrove.com, and I'll get to those in a minute, but I did want to touch on something. You tweeted about it yesterday. It's obviously been very much in the social conscience. Uh, social consciousness is probably the better term here in the last few days in, in the wake of uh, the, the George Floyd killing and and uh, so much talk about racial inequality and racial unrest and, and so much has been going on around the country. You mentioned the protest all over the country and, and virtually every major market and small town and probably in America, and you were talking on Twitter. I'm looking for the exact tweet. I had it up, and then I was scrolling uh, in, <laughs> in your thread, and I lost it. Um, but obviously, there hasn't been a ton of diversity, racial diversity, diversity in NASCAR, and I don't really think that's NASCAR's fault, per se. Uh, it just kind of is what it is. You, you talked about how 
you'd like to see, I'm paraphrasing, NASCAR sort of address this a little bit. What can they do to to introduce the sport to uh, to African Americans, to people of color, to to diversify it moving forward? Or is there anything that can be done? Well, Bubba Wallace now being in the Cup Series as a driver and an African American and kind of a voice uh, with all this going on, and the fact that NASCAR has kind of enabled him to be so prominent. While this is going on, I think that does a lot, and and I've seen <laughs> I've seen several tweets from several African Americans saying, "Oh man, I didn't even know there was a black guy driving a NASCAR." <laughs> it's like, okay, well then clearly we haven't done a great enough job of promoting this um, that we're we're trying to do better. And NASCAR uh, did a tribute um, Sunday during the NASCAR Cup Series race for George Floyd. One of the uh, black NASCAR officials kneeled during the anthem. Uh, we stopped the cars on the front stretch during the race where we kind of did a kind of a, a tribute and, and a moment where the president of NASCAR, Steve Phelps, gave a message about um, kind of the, the future of the sport as well and what we could be doing better as NASCAR. So I, I think the things that we're doing here, we're making strides. The tweet that you're talking about, basically, I was just saying that. I just found uh, it, by the way. I'll read gotta, it for you. Yeah, you, you can go ahead and tell everybody what the tweet was. Yeah, this is your tweet. It was uh, yesterday at 2.12 p.m. You said, there's a stigma around NASCAR and our fans. Like it or not, true or untrue, that is the stereotype. And it's exactly why we must do more to break it. Days like yesterday, referring to Sunday, make me proud to be a small part of our great sport. Listen, learn, and support this movement to end racism. And you're right. There is a stigma around uh, NASCAR in particular. I don't think it's particularly fair, but it's there. And uh, that's interesting. I'm, I'm curious, Tommy Joe, and I didn't mean to interrupt you, but how much pushback did you get for that tweet? We take a break in our interview with Tommy Joe Martins to tell you that we're also brought to you by Dead Soxy. Dead Soxy's excited to celebrate Father's Day. And as come to be expected, they want to do it in style. So go to deadsoxy.com, check out the limited edition Father's Day bundles. Each bundle contains a men's dress sock, a kid's crew, and a no-show. Kids typically, uh, the crew sizes are typically fit kids 4T to 3. So don't miss this exciting opportunity to celebrate Father's Day in style. uh, Secure one of the limited quantity bundles today. Visit deadsoxy.com. Check out the new limited edition Father's Day collection before they are gone. And as always, stay soxy. We're also brought to you by Pinnacle Trust. Martin Palomo and I taped a Mind on My Money podcast today. It's brought to you by Pinnacle Trust. It'll be available for you on Wednesday. Pinnacle Trust based in Madison, Mississippi. They are also home to the Pinnacle Trust 401k advisory services team where you can gain a valuable advisory team and time-saving resource that will help you develop and maintain a solid strategy for your retirement plan. They're committed to providing you with the personalized attention and involvement that you want and need. Their goal is to help you manage your 401k plan properly and ultimately improve your employees' retirement readiness. So call 401k advisory services team today at Pinnacle Trust and they'll conduct a complimentary, no-obligation benchmarking and analysis of your current 401k plan. Mention that you heard about Pinnacle Trust on the Oxford Exxon podcast. You'll get 10% off your first year's fees. We're also brought to you by John Edwards of Regency Travel Incorporated in Memphis. No matter what trip you're thinking of, if you just want to get away, you're like my, my pal Jay Tate. He's wanting to get away to Gatlinburg with a big trip this summer. Just needs to get out of the house. Uh, you want to go to uh, Florida. 
You want to go to Yellowstone. You just want to get out. You want to get away. You can do all of those things now. Get great deals in the process by getting in touch with John Edwards of Regency Travel Incorporated in Memphis. All you do is you get in touch with John. You give him some parameters. You give him a budget. He's going to give you a ton of options that you're not going to find on your own. And know this, you don't have to live in or near Memphis to take advantage of his services. 901-494-3387 or send him an email at jedwards at regencytravel.net. First-time clients save $50 off their first booked trip just by telling John you heard about Regency Travel on the podcast. We're also brought to you by Grenada Nissan. If you're in the market for a Nissan vehicle, that's the place to go. Grenada Nissan, located just off Interstate 55 in Grenada, Mississippi. They've got a complete selection of new and previously owned Nissan vehicles. Go in, test drive one today. Tell Gene and Sandy and the people there at Grenada Nissan that you heard about Grenada Nissan on the podcast. You'll get Rebel Savings on top of the already great deals at Grenada Nissan. It's GrenadaNissanUSA.com. And we're brought to you by Oxford University Bank. OUB, locally owned and operated right here in Oxford, When you deposit money at OUB, that money and the vast majority of the bank's profits go right back into the Oxford community. OUB gives you the comfort of home, all the benefits the big mega banks provide, all the technology and products you can want, all with a personal touch. OUB offers its customers the absolute best cash checking account. It's called Casasa. And with Casasa, OUB will pay customers 2.5% interest on their balances up to $50,000 and refund ATM fees nationwide. They also offer online bill pay, mobile check deposit using their online app, and they have a commercial checking account now paying 1% interest as long as you keep $10,000 in the account. comes with fully interactive online banking. They can set up any local business to deposit checks from their office and not have to worry with people coming to the bank daily to deposit those checks. If you want to learn more, go to liveoxfordbankoxford.com or call 662-234-6668. OUB is FDIC insured. Also brought to you by Harry Alexander. Harry is an Oxford-based real estate agent. He's the sponsor of my 10 Weekend Thoughts. Check out his site at harryalexander.com. Get in touch with him at ha at harryalexander.com. And we're brought to you by Bluff City Advisory Group, dedicated to building the future you desire. Founded in Memphis in 2019, their team is comprised of established and seasoned financial experts who came together to serve individuals and families of their beloved hometown. Bluff City values providing quality advice, experience, and access to all their clients, and they invite an open dialogue beyond your annual review. They believe that everyone deserves financial security, no matter your level of wealth or financial goal. They'll serve as an advocate and guide to grow a portfolio that is fruitful and sustainable to you. 901-365-3447 or email ben, B-E-N, at bluffcityadvisory.com. Now back to my interview with Tommy Joe Martins on the rafters music and food hotline not not really that much which was really encouraging yeah uh, i think that's good uh, when it comes to racial politics and all this um as southerners here the two of us talking uh i feel like this is something that i have dealt with a lot uh and being from old miss and being from a place in mississippi that's a small town uh, there are just a lot of assumptions made about who you are immediately as a person um, and kind of what you stand for. And I made a little bit of a joke about this with uh, the friends of mine uh, yesterday, kind of when all this is going down. I said, if you, if you said, uh, if I told you I was going to introduce you to a NASCAR driver named Tommy Joe Martins from Mississippi, <laughs> from Como, uh, Mississippi, yep. <laughs> that went to Ole Miss, 
and you were asking him about what he believed politically and about like the race <laughs> debates, uh, you would probably have a very different image of that person in your mind. But this is exactly why I feel like I needed to speak out about this. I feel like I can be a little bit of a a bridge. Like I, I, the first thing that I said when all this was happening was that really the last thing we need is like another white guy talking about racial politics right now. I think we all probably need to do a better job of listening and that I'm a NASCAR driver. And so if I'm tweeting about a NASCAR race for my sponsors, it's not that I'm ignorant to everything that's going on around me. Uh, but I'm really just trying to shut up about that until I can just learn more from the people that have been dealing with this and are kind of on the front lines of it. Um, I really tweeted that uh, yesterday because, number one, I was really moved by what happened with NASCAR on Sunday. But also, there's been a lot of talk in Mississippi, where we're from, about the Stennis flag and about kind of moving forward with that as a proposal um, for the state flag as a replacement for that. And I think how all this kind of ties together, there's just so many assumptions that are made about NASCAR. There's so many assumptions made about a person from Mississippi and what they could be believing in. And I feel like I'm a little bit of this weird bridge between like all of these things and it's stuff that I've, I've kind of grown up around and, and maybe I'm a little better prepared for it. So here you are. You are a, a NASCAR driver named Tommy Joe Martins from Como, Mississippi, who went to Ole Miss. You, you, bring, you are all of those things. You bring up uh, the, the, the Mississippi flag. What is news today that uh, there's a bipartisan movement inside the state legislature to uh, change the flag? How do you feel about that? I think that is a, a great step for this state moving forward. Uh, I have supported the Stennis flag now for a couple of years. Uh, on my car, what, really when I first kind of learned about this and to tell a quick story about that, and this is just goes for where I have been and where I think I've, I've just learned more and it has changed my opinion. And I would hope that a lot of other Mississippians can maybe do the same. Um, I see, have always seen the Confederate flag, uh, from the people around me as like this, like the symbol of Southern pride, right. Of like, not necessarily, right, and I, believe me, I understand the racist groups that are using that as a symbol. Like, I get that part of it, too. Um, but for the people around me in my life, it was always this, like, badge of honor as a Southerner. Like, all the Southerners, we're, look, we're all Southern. It's our heritage. This is our culture. It's a certain way of life and all that. Well, yeah, the flip side of that is, clearly, anybody that's black and in the South probably looks at that as oppression, right? And they're looking at that for like where it originated from and what it still dealt with all the way through uh, the civil rights movement in the South, which <laughs> the more you read about that, the more sad you're going to be yeah. over the course of a day. Um, so you have two very conflicting ideas here, right? You have a person that looks at that flag and goes, well, this is it, all it does is just represent where I'm from and my, my beliefs as a Southerner and kind of like my pride in being a Southerner. And they don't maybe mean it as racist from their heart. They go, well, I'm not racist. So when somebody says this is a racist flag, immediately they're just going to bristle at that. And they're going to go, well, I'm not racist. So you are just trying to kill my history. And you're just trying to do it. And it's like, look, man, all we're trying to say here is that there are a lot of people that this really bothers. And people that live in this state, people that are Mississippians and have been their entire life. And this is something that has been on our flag for so long. And it was on my flag on my race car. And this is how I'm about to relate this. I promise I'm going to tie it all back. No, it's fascinating. Go ahead. So, 
So on my race car, right, the, the point that I'm trying to make here is I sympathize with a Southerner that looks at that from a genuine place in their heart. But I just want them to kind of understand the real perception of this. And this is me, all right? Me, NASCAR driver, on my car, I ran the Mississippi State flag. I didn't put the American flag. I put the Mississippi State flag next to my name above the door on a race car. And I have done that since 2009. I have done that. In 2017, 16, I can't remember exactly when it was. um, But I noticed that over the door one day on my car, it had been pulled off that somebody had removed the flag. And and I did it in like a little bit of a state of the Mississippi state, whatever, like literally the drawing of the the geographical. Yeah. And it was just kind of like in the state, right? Whatever. Proud of where I'm from. Always have been, always will be proud to be Mississippian. Okay. Well, it got peeled off the car and I was like, what, what happened here? And so I'm asking my guys, well, what, what happened? And they said, no, an official did that. And I said, a NASCAR official did this. And so I went over and asked an official, I said, why would you, you peel the state flag off? And he said, well, I had a Confederate flag in it. And I was like, well, yeah, but that was my state flag. Like, that's why it's there. That's where I'm from. And he was like, ah, you know, where they told us to get rid of all Confederate flags. So NASCAR has kind of made a statement about the Confederate flag. This, they just didn't do it really broadly, really publicly like they are now. Yeah. But they did this a few years ago, right? And what was my first instinct? What was my first instinct? Was to bristle at it. I was to like, say you don't you don't understand, right? I was like, "What the hell are you doing? That's my flag. That's where I'm from." But what was I seeing? I was seeing the whole flag. I was seeing the whole picture of where I'm from. Look, I don't mean anything by that. I mean that's just where I'm from, right? What was everybody else seeing? Just, they were seeing they just one that one corner, corner yep. yep, that yep. represents something completely different than that. And that was really what got me starting to think about it. And I knew that there was like a proposal for another flag. And then I looked into it and I said, wait, why am I even running this anyway? I can actually support something that is a way better option for everybody in the state that everybody should be proud of. And so I've been running that on my car now for a few years. And and I hope that we go down this road with this movement. I, I just think it represents all of Mississippi so much better nationally and to the world compared to what it is now. Like, you don't see it as a problem. What I'm telling you is that's not what everybody's noticing. They're noticing this one part of it that doesn't represent everybody in this state, and that's what's holding us back. You know, I'm not a native Mississippian. Uh, I grew up in Louisiana. I've been, But I've been here long enough, I think, to have an opinion. Yeah. And, you know, and I have kids 19 17 and four, and soon to be 14 and and you hear about the brain drain from mississippi and there are these people that push back well we don't need them you, but you do you, you don't just want to export forever your your best commodity which is your people that that is that is your best commodity and i just keep thinking about it from a business standpoint all of these businesses from California and some of these states where the taxation is such that the corporations are looking for a new place to relocate. I mean, not everyone can go to Austin, Texas. Uh, everyone's trying to, but not everyone can. And and so why would you know, you, you see the growth that's happening in Alabama, especially in, in North Alabama, Birmingham, all the way up to the state line. And, and you see that growth and you think, why would you create, why would you not eliminate something as simple as a flag that is an obstacle. Yeah, you're, are you going to have other obstacles at that point? Of course. It's not going to be that easy. You're not going to eliminate the flag and suddenly go from 48th and uh, 
education to 17th. It won't be like that. But if you can eliminate an obstacle that might allow you to bring in business, which brings in jobs, which brings in other jobs and that type of thing, why would you not do it? That's, that's always sort of been my attitude with it. And I think that's where we're headed. I'm, I'm, I'm encouraged by it. And, and for the people, like you said, who are genuinely attached to the flag for emotional reasons and ancestry and things of that nature. I, I, I get a pure, it. A pure reason to them yeah. and a person that sits there and goes, well, I'm not a racist. Like you're labeling me as that. And they're going to bristle at this. It's like, okay, look, I want you to step back. Don't look at this of what it means to you. I want you to look at this, what it means to so many other people. And you got to be able to separate those things and go, what's better for our state as a whole and what's better for everybody. Yeah. And, and you know, Someone like you who loves Mississippi, someone like the person you're referencing who loves Mississippi, but when you're talking about trying to attract people here who they don't love Mississippi, they've never been here, how could they love it? They don't hate it, they don't love it, but there's the flag. And, and what's a, their first opinion on it? It's a giant negative, yeah. And so if the, and you know, yeah, the first impressions matter. And, and so if that's, if that's the first impression, that's going to be difficult to overcome, especially when there are alternatives right around you, you know? Same thing here. This is me. You talk about first impressions matter, right? I ran a late model. So this is like low-level stock car stuff when I was first starting out. This is 2007, 8 range. I was in Nashville Fairground Speedway, which is kind of a historic track in NASCAR that we're trying to bring back right now. And it was my first like kind of bigger late model race, right? Well, I had my name, Tommy Joe Martins, on a car, and I had the Mississippi State flag on it, right? And I wound up befriending some of these people at National Fairgrounds. I ran there a decent amount. Uh, but probably one of the most redneck guys that I've ever met in my entire life who I befriended. So I'm, I'm making fun of him now. It's a guy named Daniel Bolden who still races over there right now. <laughs> okay. He told me the story about the first time he saw my car. Because I was new, right? Who's this new guy? I was like 23 at the time, whatever it was. And he was like, who's this person? And he sees the car, he sees the name, and he sees the flag. <laughs> and his and remember, this is a huge redneck that's talking here. And he goes, man, who is this big redneck? <laughs> right? Yeah. And But what was, what was being represented there? Right? What was the first thing he saw? And this is a, that is a redneck guy. Yeah. And that's what he saw. And that's what he labeled me as. And so it's like, that happens to an entire state. That happens to an entire bunch of people that maybe have the purest of intentions and it's just going to be perceived the wrong way. I asked you about this. I'm going to get into these questions in a minute because some of them are a lot of fun and we'll, 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 yeah. we'll lighten the mood a little. Um, but I was curious because I always just assume that, you know, someone in the Xfinity series who's right there a step away from the, the NASCAR cup series, that that's the constant goal. That's the driving thing. And you're like, ah, eh, it's not really, it's not really my thing. Um, can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. So <laughs> this is where probably being a realist kind of hurts, hurts you a little bit when it comes to like achieving dreams. Um, so I'm 33 now and I've kind of carved out, uh, I at least carved out enough of a living for myself in the sport where I've been around it now for a long time. Um, never really had a big sponsor and never been on the biggest team. Um, but I've always kind of been seen as an underdog and somebody that maybe overachieved for whatever level of car they were in. Right. If I was in a 30th place car, I took a lot of pride in finishing 25th. Well, 
that's great. And to the owners in the garage, they notice that. But in the end, our sport still comes down to financing and money. I mean, you got to be able to raise sponsorship and value. And that's tougher to do when you're not in a competitive car, right? Because you're not a competitive car. What's the perception of you, the driver? They're like, well, that's just a 25th place guy. And it's like, eh, well, I'd be better if I was in a better car. Yeah. But you're driving, just going to sell everybody on this, right? Okay, so how does that pertain to this? Cup Series, same thing, just more zeros here for me to just get up there. Now, could I do it? Have I had opportunities to go up there and run the cup level? Yes, they've asked me. I have I have the qualifications now to do it. Uh, it's always been in a car that was a 35th place car up there. And for me now, where I'm at in the Xfinity Series and, and having worked at this now for so long, I'm in a car that I really feel like could be a 10th place car and could be a really competitive car. Uh, we, we haven't gotten the finishes that I feel like we deserve yet this year, but at Charlotte, we were running eighth with, with three laps to go. I was in line for one of my best finishes ever. And so I feel like we're right there with our team and what we put together. I, I feel like I would rather be competitive and really build up something with my name on it, Martins Motorsports, in the Xfinity Series, rather than jump ship, try to get a replacement person in there, piece it together, whatever. Maybe Martins Motorsports falters, and I go up in the top series and I run 36th just to say that I was there. Like, that. That doesn't, that's not it. If I, if I get a good opportunity up there, I'm your guy. But until then, I'm going I'm to stick with what I think is a pretty good opportunity for me at the Xfinity Series level. All right, Tommy Joe Martins, I opened up for uh, some questions at rebelgrove.com and uh, got, got a few that were pretty interesting. One wants to know uh, if your greatest regret in college was losing the Tournament of Champions poker game your senior year against a young guy <laughs> by the name of Tom. <laughs> Yeah, so this is a funny story. So I used to host a, a poker game there in Oxford. Uh, we had – this was me being a nerd, really, more than anything else. Um, I got, like, a Texas Hold'em table in my apartment over there in, uh, in the Mark, and we held kind of local poker games over there in Oxford. Uh, then probably once a week we had, like, tournaments, and at the end of the year we had a tournament of champions. It was the people that had the most – had won the most money over the course of the year. And yes, I lost that tournament. I was very, very disappointed. I think that was probably Thomas Hester that was commenting on this on Rebel Grove. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats uh, to whoever won that. If it was Thomas, I forgot. So congrats, Thomas. You still got that one on me. The uh, the same person wants to know if, uh, if, if you remember uh, his friend's Keith's video submittal to a Poker Stars TV show. Yes, I do. <laughs> Keith Wernley, still friends with him to this day. We still we still talk a decent amount. And Keith is actually a really good player. He actually played in the World Series a few times. So he's a and won, by the way, won a World Series of Poker Circuit event. Is that right? How about that? How about, so that? How about that? So Oxford Poker Club really coming through. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, we get a question about uh, Talladega Knights. He wants to know. Ricky Bobby and Cal Naughton Jr. used the shake-and-bake move to win races. <laughs> he wants to know if that's real. Is that airflow? He says, I'm not a NASCAR guy, so I'm not sure how it worked. <laughs> okay, look, I would say that it's about 50% real. Okay? Shake-and-bake. If, if I had to rate this on a scale, it's about 50% real. All right, number one thing that's not real, we can't talk to each other during the races. Okay, we, I can't talk to another driver during the races, so I can't be like, all right, dude, shake and bake. I can't do that. All right now, the airflow with the car—that sort of sucks that you can't. By the way, because yeah, that, that would be pretty cool. 
<laughs> it actually would be kind of fun at times. It would actually be really terrible at times. It'd be good for like the fans. Uh, but if I could give somebody a piece of my mind a lot during a race, that probably would not be that great. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> probably wouldn't be great for my reputation <laughs> at the moment. Um, let's see. The, so the draft, right? So the draft is when essentially two cars can stay close together or a group of cars can stay really close together and they can actually go faster together than is one car, right? So it's air resistance. One car breaks the air. The car that's behind it can kind of follow in the wake of that. Now there's less air resistance. It can actually go faster. So there is something to it. Is it a little bit overdone in Talladega Nights? Uh, yes. Yes, <laughs> are, it is. <laughs> are you a big talker during races? Are you on the phone with your, on the headset with your people? Do you talk a lot or are you, are you locked in kind of quiet? Yeah, I'm pretty chatty. So it would be a, if I could talk to other drivers and yell at them, I probably would be doing that too. Uh, the team likes to say that I'm two tenths faster when I just shut my mouth. So I, I, uh, I probably just need to talk less and drive more. Uh, we get the question that I know you've been asked. It's a philosophical question that does not pertain to, uh, to auto racing, but it does pertain, I think, to a lot of life opinions. Is a hot dog a sandwich? No. I'm. I look. I'm very strongly against this. I'm with you. Yeah. Just. Just get out of here. Those. Those are the people that we need to kick out of Mississippi. By the way, those people. Because the sandwich is two pieces of bread. Yes. The hot dog bun is not it's separated. A, it's a sep- unless you accidentally separated it, at which point it's no longer a good hot dog. Get out of here. Right. Yeah. And and on top and on top of that, with a sandwich. If I literally just ate a sandwich, if I literally just put a piece of, of meat on, a, on some bread and then just put mustard over the top of it and ate it, you'd be like, what are you doing? You'd be like, that, that's a terrible sandwich. That's literally just some meat and bread and, and like mustard. Hot dog, it's a different deal. It's just a separate thing. Well, it's, it's as simple as this. If you invite me over to your house and I come over and you're like, hey, you want a beer? I'm like, yeah, sure. And then you say, you want a sandwich? And I'm like, yeah, I have a sandwich. And you bring me a hot dog, I'm going to look at you and go, are you a communist? Are you crazy? Yeah. What's wrong with yeah, you? I mean, in the same way that if you say, hey, Neil, would you like a hot dog? And I'm like, yeah, that sounds good. And you bring me a turkey and cheese sandwich, I'm going to look at you. Yeah. Like, what, what, you, you said hot dog. It, it, it's, to me, this is not complicated. People, that's, that's why there are two words, everybody. Yeah, it's, it's just it's crazy. Who's the most down-to-earth driver? Who's, what's your favorite track? Favorite track... Uh, gosh, it's so, it's so tough, man. I love, okay. Favorite track to race on is probably Iowa Speedway. It's probably uh, my favorite one to race on. Why? Really? The surface is really bumpy. The track's really worn out. It's a smaller track, but it's pretty wide. So you can kind of race around each other a lot. So it's just a lot of fun for me as a driver. I can run the bottom lane. I can run the top lane, the middle. Like it's just a very, it's, it's a fun track to race on. Uh, you're always around other cars, uh, it's, so that's it. So that would be my favorite track to race on. My favorite track, period, is probably Daytona still to this day. Uh, Daytona is just the most special place. Every time you go down there, you just uh, I make myself just kind of stop for a second and realize just how lucky I am to get to do something that I wanted to do my whole life. So that's probably – Daytona's still the best. By the way, Daytona been very mean to me. Over the years, <laughs> the first race I ever went down there, I finished eight, and I basically wrecked or spun or not qualified for everything ever since. So it's been it's been pretty tough. Is it uh, is it eerie as a driver to pass that spot where you know Dale Ar- Dale Earnhardt lost his life? 
uh, look, you you know the history with so many people that have had crashes and and have gotten hurt there and everything else. And it's it's still when we go down there in February every year, uh, you're reminded of the history of the entire place. Dale, the winners, people that have died, winners in all different series. And so you just know that you're just a part of something there that, that's just really historic. So Daytona is still, still the coolest. We have someone wanting to know if you've ever done any Formula One type racing, open wheel racing. Is it something that, that intrigues you at the very least? Uh, it's just never been my thing. Like, have I gotten in an open wheel car and driven around? Yes, I have. Uh, have I gotten in open cockpit cars and driven around? Yes, I have on a racetrack and done it. Uh, honestly, just for like fun. Uh, I, I work at a place out in Las Vegas called Spring Mountain, and it's a motorsport resort and country club type thing where we do uh, driver training and we have schools and stuff like that. Uh, and some of the members there, their private cars and stuff. That's like something they let some of the instructors play around with every once in a while. So have I been in one? Yeah. And I've taught lessons in that stuff. But is that something that, that I have ever wanted to really do? No. I respect it a lot. I think it's one of the most dangerous forms of motorsports there is. So really cool. I'm six foot three. I need to be in a stock car. Yeah. Yeah. That, yeah. Yeah. Because those guys are little dudes for the most part. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. Uh, someone wants to know, JT Kill You wants to know, does it feel weird to turn right? <laughs> uh, no, I actually like turning right a whole lot. When we go to a road course, we have a bunch of those on our Xfinity series schedule where we go to Watkins Glen, for example. It's a road course and we go to some of these places. I'll tell you one place I wish we went. So to kind of explain this to the people that maybe don't follow NASCAR that well, we have different types of tracks, right? We have a speedway. That would be like a big track. That'd be like Daytona, Talladega. Yeah. We have what's called like an intermediate track. That'd be like a mile and a half track, kind of like Atlanta, like we just raced. And they kind of have mostly the same kind of shape. It's like a little tri-oval. It's a mile and a half. We have short tracks. That would be like Bristol yeah, or Martinsville or something like that. Small track, a lot of beating and banging, bumping into each other, that kind of stuff. Fans really enjoy that. Then we have a road course. So a road course would be a course that has like up and down, left and right-hand turns, completely different than basically everything else that we do. Uh, a road course would be like something like F1 races on. It'd be the same type of track. Uh, and would we have those, we just don't have as many of them on the NASCAR circuit. And for me, as somebody that teaches this kind of stuff all the time in Las Vegas, I really look forward to going to those because that's something that I go, well, this is a little bit of a specialty for me, but maybe it's not for some of the other drivers. It's a place where maybe I can overachieve a little more. Yeah, I was I always enjoy watching those kind of races for whatever reason. It, it, it just feels, I don't know, has a different, totally different feel to it than like watching Talladega, you know? Yeah, and, and, I don't absolutely. Know. And different get, version of chaos. <laughs> and and, those, and the, the, open, the open wheel, like the Formula One races on those kind of tracks are super dangerous. I mean, you, you, you would think that, sure. yeah, those are scary almost. Uh, all right, a, a fan wants to know, hey, you know, uh, he's basically saying, I miss – uh, I miss baseball and basketball and all the stuff that's out there and, and, and NASCAR's on and, and I, I need something to watch. So uh, what should new fans be watching for? What are, what are, what, how, what should a new fan be looking for to sort of be able to enjoy the race more given that he or she is not a, a typical watcher? Uh, I would look for a person to root for is what I would say. Uh, that, that is going to be the thing that 
makes you a NASCAR fan for a longer period of time than just watching a race. Because when you watch a race for the first time, there's a lot of stuff happening. You probably don't know a lot of the terms and stuff that are being said just kind of casually. Uh, it's a different sport. You're going to learn so much. But I can say the same thing about a person that's never watched a hockey game. Sure. Too. Like, they're like, what's offsides? Like, I don't know. What they, what's, what's icing? Yeah. Like, what is, what is any of this stuff? So when I talk about, like, stagger in a tire, they're like, what the heck is that? Well, okay, look, just give yourself a little bit of time here. You're going you're gonna to get there, right? Uh, but I think picking a person is the big thing. And so you can pick a favorite, right? You can pick one of those drivers that's on one of the best teams that has a chance to maybe win the races, win the championship. Easy thing to do. You're going to see him up there being competitive. You can pick a younger driver, pick an older driver. You can pick somebody in the middle of the pack that you're hoping maybe gets their shot on a big team. You pick somebody in the back of the pack that's like an underdog that you want to kind of root for, and maybe they have kind of a really great day all of a sudden, and that's like a, a different level of joy. That would be like the old Miss fan approach, right? Which is, wow, we're terrible all the time. Oh, my God, we're awesome. <laughs> and it's just like a lot more – you get a lot more jubilation out of that. So it depends on how – do you want to root for Bama or do you want to root for Ole Miss? I'm more of an Ole Miss guy. I've been on small teams <laughs> my whole life. Uh, so it's different and different levels in NASCAR as well. Xfinity series, truck series, full of a lot of really young guys that are trying to make their way up. Also full of people like me that are kind of like, uh, kind of mid-level veteran guys that have kind of found a niche in one of those other series as well. So a lot of different ways to look at it, but pick a person, pick a person, declare take a break in the show to tell you about Community Mortgage located in Oxford, Memphis, Soto County, and Chattanooga. Underwriting and processing is done in Memphis, so you're getting local underwriting and understand your market. A leader in condo financing in Oxford and the float down option where you can lock in the current rate, but if rates go down before you close, you get the lower rate. 662-234-2704 or J-L-O-W-E at communitymtg.com. Also brought to you by G&M Pharmacy on South Lamar in Oxford. Also Tyson Drugs on the Square in Holly Springs. Both those locations are open for regular business hours. Tyson's is utilizing a walk-up window. And GM is offering curbside service there in Oxford. Both stores are dedicated to local delivery and still able to deliver same day as well. 662-236-2222. The podcast brought to you by Visit Oxford. Visit OxfordMS.com is the website. Click the very top to see how to support Oxford during COVID-19. You can see a list of all retailers, restaurants with curbside with delivery options to uh, help you out there if you need that list. Also ways to support hospitality workers who are out of jobs right now in Oxford between Tip Roulette and some other options that you have. Again, visit OxfordMS.com. Podcast also brought to you by Special Orthopedic Group. They are open in Tupelo and Oxford. You can skip the ER for urgent ortho-related injuries at both locations. They're offering, offering virtual health telemedicine. Patients have direct access to all SOG physicians and nurse practitioners. Patients have 24-hour access to appointments at 662 767 4200 or SOGMS.com. No referral is needed. Walk-ins are welcome. And then last but not least, we're brought to you by In-House Interior and Design, 662-681-6241. You can call. You can text. They are available for you. I talked to Nikki this week. They've been picking up more clients because people are home right now. They're seeing things around their house they want to change. They want to fix up. They offer new client gifts. They offer dorm room appointments whenever that does uh, come with discounts as well. So you can find out more. Text or call 662-681-6241. Oxford Rebel 5 wants to know uh, if you can get a cup ride, if you would put Joey Logano into the wall for him. He says he will start a, uh, a GoFundMe 
for your fine. So your fine will be will be taken care of here at, at rebelgrove.com. Yeah, so I got a feeling the fine might be a little more than what they're willing to pay. <laughs> if the first cup race I ever ran, I just drove through Joey Logano. I don't know. If, I don't know if NASCAR would like that too much. Uh, next question is, uh, he says, Charlotte was a real kick to the gut, but he and the team have rebounded nicely. Obviously, everyone wants to win, but what is the realistic goal in the context of budget, car, et cetera, for the team this year? Yeah, so as an owner, what I know is a top 20 where we don't break anything is a very good day. That's a really good day. We think our equipment is pretty good. We think we have top 20, top 15-ish quality cars, right? So a top 20, and we didn't wreck anything, good day. Uh, what, as a competitor, what I'm trying to do now is finish in the top 10. Uh, that's something that now I've been chasing for a really long time in NASCAR. I've driven for so many small teams where a 25th was a good day, or a 30th was a good day, or a whatever was a good day. Uh, that now, with the speed we've shown this year with our own team, it's kind of moved the goalpost for me a little bit where I go, man, if we have a really good day, we could finish seventh. And that would be awesome. Uh, and it would also be my first top 10 ever. It's not like that. I haven't had successful days for teams. Yeah. It's just, I've never had that like miraculous day. I came very close in Iowa one year. I finished 11th with a team that probably should have been finishing about 34th where just everything kind of fell together and missed about one spot. So I'm still looking for that one top 10. So that's why Charlotte hurts so bad for me because I was running eighth with three laps to go. It's going to be my first one ever. And we ended up kind of getting in somebody else's wreck right there at the end of the race. So that was disappointing. But as a competitor for me, I now know that like that is the potential of the team that I'm on, that we can do that occasionally. That wasn't just like some fluke. We actually were running 12th or 13th in the race for a long period of time, got a little bit of a break and nudged our way in there. We go do it again. So two different things that I'm trying to balance there, right? The owner and the driver. This is obviously someone that really follows your sport. He says, as far as last weekend, how hard is it to find that bottom line paint? And you'll have to explain to people like me exactly yeah. what that means. Can you feel the car hook up to it? Atlanta seems tricky, but someone like Harvick is mesmerizing at it. Yeah, Atlanta is extremely hard. Uh, it was probably the hardest track uh, that I'd raced on in a really long time especially this version of it um i i was watching the, the cup race on sunday so okay let's let's back it up a little bit first of all I want to bottom address, line paint yeah let's address let's just address what the heck am i talking about okay so atlanta um they paint kind of the, uh something called the apron of the racetrack okay so you have you have the the track which is kind of the edged portion that everybody's seeing the banked portion right right then you have the apron that's like the flatter part that's down around the bottom and so they will paint a line and in atlanta's case it's actually a pretty wide line because they do it red white and blue down along that apron right so one of the things that kevin harvick is like famous for doing at atlanta is he just can run that bottom line so well and you're like well why don't you just do that just do what he's doing yeah the thing is it's really hard and the racing surface is really old and worn out and so if you're in a really heavy stock car with a lot of horsepower and a tire that's not that big and it wears out really fast if you're turning the wheel more to try to stay on the inside part of the track well, the car is wanting to slide more. Does that make sense? Because you're trying to give it gas. It's wanting to slide up the up the ramp. Up the track. Yeah, right. okay. So there's a balance of speed that you can carry to be able to stay around the inside of the track 
and how you use the throttle very smoothly to not upset the car to where it wants to slide up. So for me, as somebody that's, and I said this to my family, I was like, I don't know what the heck Kevin Harvick is doing over there because I could physically, literally could not do it. Every time I went down there, I nearly slid. Uh, and some of that's going to depend on how the car is handling, right? How your car is per- actually set up. Some cars can maybe do it a little better than others. Uh, but for me, when I went down there to try to do it, I spun out like during our race at Atlanta. <laughs> I spun out. Because you lost point. control as it slid? I did. Okay. I did. And I was trying to run the inside. And as I got back to the gas, the car kicked out. I thought I caught it. I did not catch it. <laughs> I spun out. Luckily, I didn't damage the car that bad. We were still able to come back and finish 22nd. But yeah, that I was kind of mesmerized watching him do this as, as somebody that does this. And I had to run a different line during the race. I had to find something that was a little more comfortable for me and my car. And that was really out, kind of along the outside part of the track up there near the wall. You're asked what your favorite uh, dish is at the Como Steakhouse. Uh, mm, eight ounce filet. Okay. Eight ounce filet. It's just, you know, it's the standard. It's a good question. Well, I should have asked early. It shows you how, how bad of an interviewer I am sometimes. I, I, I try to be good, but sometimes you screw you gotta it up. Got to get the sausage and cheese plate. By the way, I just got to figure this real, just real quick. Got to get the sausage and cheese plate when you go to the Como Steakhouse. Do that every time. Just check that on the box every time. Yeah, I've had that when I, I was up there with a couple of your buddies, and it's good. Oh, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, how did you get into racing? How'd you, did, was that something you, you grew up wanting to do? I mean, dirt tracks, m- motocross, what was it that got you in? Yeah, so I, this was something I just fell in love with when I was really, really young. Nobody in my family has ever done this. I'm the first one to do it. Uh, my dad would basically tell me any advice for somebody that's looking to try to get into this is just play something else. Just do something else. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a really long, weird career, and, and it's really a – I feel like you're almost more of a fundraiser than anything else uh, trying to go do this. Uh, but – how did I do it? I started racing uh, dirt tracks, mainly around Mississippi, when I was about 16, 17, in go-karts. So I was not super young. We did that when I was really young, and my go-kart got stolen. And whatever. Uh, we just didn't really do it again. And, and when I, we kind of felt ready to, to make another run at it, I was actually in high school. We started racing, and I had a lot of success. We started racing at a national level with go-karts. Uh, had some success. Uh, it was me and my dad. We had no idea what we were doing, working on a go-kart. Um, and still did okay for a couple of people that didn't know anything. Uh, and it was pretty obvious that I had a little bit of a knack for it. It was something that I always just genuinely thought I would be pretty good at. And I had, like, no training, no nothing. Uh, and was pretty good at it. When I went to college at Ole Miss, I was being a clown, and I, like, dropped out of school, was being a doofus, and my dad basically came to me, and he was like, all right, look, uh, you need something else going on besides just college. What if we went racing again, right? And he bought a sports car, and I ran that in some amateur racing kind of throughout the southeast and all over the country, really, and had a lot of success with that, and won a bunch of races, set some track records. Um, did really well. And again, it was, it was pretty obvious. This is something I was good at. And I knew that what I'd always wanted to do was NASCAR. And that's where we started getting into it. And and I told that story earlier about being at Nashville fairgrounds and racing late models, late model stock cars. That's what I ran kind of as the precursor to NASCAR. And we were spending money doing that. And my dad was like, why are we spending money doing this? 
uh, after I had gotten enough experience at that level, he was like, if we're going to spend money on it, let's just race NASCAR. Like that's where, that's where you're trying to go. Let's just do it and get you in front of other NASCAR owners. And if they see you've got some potential, maybe it'll work out. And so that's kind of what it, we did. We did it on our own a lot. Um, we made a lot of mistakes out there. We were not very good. We had to learn basically every wrong way to do it before we could actually learn the right ways to do it. And now this newest iteration of Martin's Motorsports in 2020, uh, I feel like we hopefully have finally got this right. I think clearly from a competitiveness standpoint, we're better than we've ever been. So it's, it's been a long road to get here. Part 77 wants to know, uh, have you ever had a racing situation arise with another driver where you wanted to pull a Cale Yarbrough, Donnie Allison, circa, circa 1979 Daytona 500 with the guy? I did. Uh, I literally had to be restrained in the pits at Iowa Speedway. Uh, this is not something that ever made it onto, uh, onto the TV network. Uh, I was running like 20-whatever. We were just kind of – we had an okay day. We were like 23rd. And there was a kid in his first ever race. It's a guy named Derek Scott Jr. He was like 17 years old. He was really young. And uh, he was in 24th. These are obviously not a couple of positions that are really going to affect the race in any way at all. And it was like 20-something laps ago. And at the time, we actually, our truck was handling really well. I think we had something go wrong at the beginning of the the race. I was in the truck series at the time. Uh, There were a couple of guys in front of me that were running like 11th and 12th. And I was faster than both of them. But I was was laps down. And I was like, well, I'm not going to, they're racing for position here. I'm not going to jack with them, right? So I was just kind of waiting for them to settle it out. Well, as I caught them, and now I'm kind of getting held up by these two guys that are racing, but it's not, I'm not going to jump in the middle of it. Well, this other kid, Derek Scott, caught me. Now, we are racing for position, and this is his first race, and I guess he just thought that 23rd was going to be the difference for him. And so he basically just completely overdrove a corner and ran into me and totaled our truck totaled it. I mean, it was a really hard hit and we had just had such a tough season already. And so everything had kind of piled up and, uh, Oh yeah, I lost it. I I completely lost it. There's a video. If anybody wants to look at that on YouTube, you want to look up Iowa crash, Tommy Joe Martins. Uh, you're going to see me get out of the car and I am basically just talking to the air. I am, there's people escorting me to an ambulance, and I am just basically screaming into the void already. That's before I got back down into the infield and was around anybody else. So yeah, we, we uh, <laughs> if they had let me go, that would have probably that probably would have been good. You got a couple more minutes for a few more of these. Yeah. All right, uh, what are your thoughts on restrictor plate racing? Uh, it, it, do you favor the three and four wide racing, or would you like to see a return to the older days when you could get someone? You know, up on the last lap and, and slingshot past them. Right. Okay. So again, let's go NASCAR vocabulary. And I kind real- of understand this. I'm I'm, I'm almost yes. impressed with myself. Yes. Okay. So NASCAR vocabulary, real quick for everybody: restrictor plate racing. Essentially, they will restrict the amount of horsepower on the cars at a few tracks that we go to. So Talladega and Daytona are the ones that they mainly do it at. Okay. And it's because if they didn't, we would be going like 240 miles an hour around there. And that would obviously be very dangerous because we could go flying up into the stands. If a car got spun, it would flip at those speeds. They figured out that the launch speed for these cars is essentially like 180 miles an hour. So they want to try to keep us not getting too far above that, right? So when they do that, 
and they restrict the engines, well, it makes the draft, where we were talking about earlier, that's a bigger deal. Because now everybody is kind of grouped together, right? Because you might have the best engine, but it's restricted now. So my engine can at least sort of keep up with yours a little better, and I'm able to stay with you. And so that's why you wind up having big packs at Talladega and Daytona. It's also where we have the biggest wrecks. But it also allows a smaller team like mine to compete at those tracks for maybe a great finish. So if he's asking, like, what do I like about it? Yeah, I like restrictor plate racing. I like Talladega and Daytona. Those are two tracks where anything can happen. Anybody can win. A small team can go have a great day. So I've always really enjoyed the challenge of it. This is a good question. And I remember when I was a kid, I'm 50. When I was a kid, I knew more of the drivers than maybe I do today. And obviously some of it is, you know, uh, it was different what's on television and that kind of thing. But his question is, uh, I don't want to steal his thunder because it's good. He says, how has the sponsorship and money affected NASCAR and the drivers of today? It seems as if there are just generic drivers out there just driving around in circles waiting to cash a check. No real personalities or rivalries that you can latch on to and follow. Yeah, I think there was just a sense of a NASCAR driver was... Hmm, how can I say this? Especially for a predominantly blue-collar fan base, yeah, right? Yeah. In NASCAR. I think there was a sense in the 90s and kind of this golden era of NASCAR, 80s, 90s, early 2000s range, uh, of a NASCAR driver was a blue-collar guy, right? Like, that guy's just, I mean, good grief, that guy's fat, and he's out there driving around in NASCAR, right? I mean, I can... There was something so relatable to the people that were getting in the cars each and every week. And that's one thing that I think NASCAR honestly needs to do a much better job of, to kind of his point, is like, I'm just a normal guy. Uh, I obviously have to change, you know, my diet and all this kind of stuff to go be in a a car like this every single weekend. And, And there's a performance level now in our sport that is maybe different than what it was back in the 90s from from an athlete standpoint, I will say, right? By the way, not saying it was easy to drive a car in the 90s. Definitely was not. It's just not easy to drive these cars either. Uh, We do a lot more stuff aerodynamically with the cars where we, like, seal them off. They get really, really, really hot. Uh, And it's just a different environment. And we're so maxed out all the time on everything that we do. It's just kind of comparing different eras. But, but, we need to do a better job of putting people in front of that fan or anybody that's a potential NASCAR fan that is more relatable than what we currently do. Like a, a million, a millionaire guy flying in on a private jet, hobnobbing with spon- you know, high-level sponsors, going to stay in a $3 million motor coach, not interacting with fans at all, walking over to the car getting out of the car and then complaining about it, getting back on the private jet, flying home. That's not relatable. Nothing about that is relatable. Yeah. What I would tell you is that that is like far fewer people than the perception in the sport. That is absolutely what happens with some of those guys. And the thing, they've earned it. Number one, they're really successful and they're really good drivers, but that's still not the majority of people. And NASCAR should do a better job of showing that like, that completely still exists. Now, there's a guy that drives like a dually 
to the racetrack every race and like pulls his car in it and like unloads it and there's like three guys on the team and they go out and race that's relatable and like those are good stories and i think we need to tell those too what do you do 49 laps into a race and you got to go to the bathroom it's a great question it's a common question if you look up if you literally typed in what happens if a NASCAR driver and then just left that blank? The first thing that's going to be there is going to be has to pee. That's the first. It's going to be the first one. Uh, this is a real simple answer for me. You don't pee. You don't. Do, you, you don't have to pee. Like everybody's like, what do you mean you don't have to pee? It's like, okay, look, our races last two and a half to three hours, right? I hydrate all through the week, leading up to race week day. We go race. Right before I race, I go pee. Like, that's the last thing I do before I get in the car. It's literally like national anthem and done and go pee. Like, if you want to go get an autograph from every single driver, find the closest bathroom slash porta potty <laughs> to pit road and just stand there and wait until pre-race activities. And you're going to get every you're going to get everybody's autograph. Uh, but but during the race, like I am sweating a lot a lot during the race and there's there's where all the fluids going yeah so I, i've gotten out of a car this is a true story i got out of a car at atlanta right so last week it was really muggy down in atlanta it was really hot bubba wallace who we were talking about earlier here on the show um when he got they wanted to obviously interview him it had been a really big week for him only black nascar driver they wanted to talk to him after the race and you know all this well he like Fainted from heat exhaustion. Kind of a scary moment, right? To kind of put this in my perspective, I got out of the car. I drank immediately two big bottles of water. I drank a thing of Pedialyte, whole thing of Pedialyte. I drank a coffee on the way home because we drove back home. I drank another water in the morning. I still didn't have to go to the bathroom until basically lunch the next day. Oh, wow. That's amazing. So that- that gives you an idea of the level of dehydration we're kind of talking about here. So when everybody's like, well, I don't know how you don't have to pee. Well, this is not a normal environment <laughs> that we're getting into. And another thing, I'm not thinking about having to pee when I'm out there basically wrestling a 4,000-pound race car around doing 180 miles an hour. You're mainly trying to think of like how not to die. <laughs> not really thinking about That's you're not, not, really you're not thinking about yeah. your bladder yeah, yeah. Um, but, but i also think this is kind of a problem that happens with people and that is so relatable about nascar is they're like well i drive a car so therefore nascar what happens when i have to pee driving down the road it's like nope time out very different <laughs> not like driving a car down the road <laughs> very different it's not i-40 yeah, this is not, this is not, 40. Yeah, this, this is not driving down 55 all right a little different if if you couldn't be a race car driver or anything in racing what would you have done for a living Ooh, uh, journalism i mean that's what i went to school at old miss for was to cover nascar i wanted to be a race reporter um so something in that broadcasting i really like broadcasting a lot i like broadcasting sports uh like news i like all that like writing I'm one of those weird people that enjoys writing. <laughs> so I can relate. Something, something, in, something in that. That just means you're weird is what I've decided. Just so you know, uh, <laughs> yes. anybody who just likes to write is a weird person. We're, yes. we're, we are nerds, and there's nothing really that we can do about it. Um, 
Your thoughts on the, the Denny Hamlin, uh, Corey LaJoy fallout on, on Twitter. Did you follow that? Okay, so this, for everybody that's listening here, Denny Hamlin, successful driver. He's won the Daytona 500 three times. Drives FedEx as the sponsor. He drives on one of the biggest teams in the sport. Corey LaJoy, um, son of a guy named Randy LaJoy. He's kind of been a knockaround guy in the sport for a little while. Honestly, a lot like me. He's a little younger than me. He's also in the Cup Series, though, top-level series. He's driving for a small team. There's a little bit of kind of banter back and forth here via Twitter, if you want to look it up, where essentially Corey mouthing off a little bit, basically like, the only reason I'm not winning is I'm not in a good car. Denny Hamlin basically being like, well, being in a good car doesn't mean you're going to win. You know, a winner wins. But a good car is part of that. And so there was like this little bit of a tug of war of like, you know, I'm a successful driver. Don't belittle me being successful. But yes, I understand that you're on an underfunded car that's not as good as mine. And so we're, we're kind of, it's two different goals going on, right? What I think happens here is that both sides are looking at this like they're not getting any respect, right? That like you don't respect me because you think it's just the car, and the little guy is going, well, you don't respect me because you think I'm not a very good driver, and that's why I'm running back here, and it's actually the car. And so as a guy that's driven the crappy car, <laughs> I can tell you the car is probably 90% of what we do. I can say that. I was going to ask you, what is the difference between the 20th car and the 10th car? Oh, okay. So that's all right. That's a long, that's a long thing that I'm going to try to do really quickly. All right, so a top-level team. Because you didn't uh, know you were going to be here for an hour and ten minutes when we started. It's all so. good. All right, top-level team for everybody that's doing this. Top-level team in any one of the NASCAR series. In a given year, they're going to build 10 to 14 different cars, trucks, whatever, brand new. Brand new. They're going to purpose-build each one of them for a very specific type of racetrack where it's going to excel at those short tracks, intermediate, speedway, road course, whatever it is. And even smaller than that, well, is this a bumpy intermediate track or is this a smooth one? And they're going to build those cars specifically for that. They're going to get a fresh engine, brand new, built with like factory support from Toyota, Ford, Chevrolet, whoever it is. They're going to have people in their race shops that are dedicated to literally just building parts. That is all they do. 40 to 50 people per team. In some places, like at a Hendrick Motorsports in the Cup Series, they have 400 employees. 400 employees. They have four cars that race full-time. Wow. Okay? So that's the scale we're talking about there. Brand new everything all the time. Wind tunnel testing. I mean, I can't even, you know, engineering. Literally 80 engineers. That That's all they do is just engineering for a car. For Corey LaJoy's team, his team has 15 people. Total. On the whole team. And 10 of them come to the track every week. So it's Alabama not, versus UT Martin out there. He's not, exactly. He's not getting a new car. He's, their, their team is small. They're buying cars from bigger teams when they essentially like get done with them, right? When they feel like they can build something better and they sell them. He's not getting fresh engines every week. He's getting eh, a little bit of the older technology. In some cases, He's not even getting brand new tires all the time because that's like a big expense. Tires, $2,200 a set. A brand new team is, or a top team is going to have 15 sets. Corey might have to try to run a race in 10 sets. 
So now he's going to have to go longer on his tires, which are going to wear out more, right? So all this is going on. Now, for a casual fan, they're going to look at this car sitting on the grid, and they're going to go, well, that's a car, and that's a car. Yeah, of course. And it's and it's a stock car, so they're supposed to be the same, right? Yes, but absolutely not. (laughs) Absolutely not. So Corey might have to run one car five or six races in a row. Well, of course, some of this stuff wears out a little bit, right? It's not going to be as good when it's not as fresh. Whereas Denny Hamlin is getting a brand new race car every time. And if they run it once, they take it back to the shop, completely tear it down, completely replace every part on it, build it back together, Take it to another track later in the year. Well, it's not its not a car that has a race on it. It's a brand new car again. Yeah. So that, that's the difference between the top and the bottom there. And so it's tough to judge. What I said is that that 10% driver, well, Corey LaJoy might be all 10% driver. Let's say he's, he's 10 out of 10 as a driver. Well, if he's in a 70% car, well, Denny Hamlin could be a 1% level driver and he's still got a 90% car. Does that make sense? Yeah, so it's still 91 to 80. Yeah. And he's not beating him. And, and it's not happening. Now, Denny actually is a 10 out of 10 guy. Like, he's a really good driver. So that it just creates a situation where, yeah, that's just not normally going to happen where they beat him. And so for teams like mine and Martin's Motorsports, I would say we probably have about an 80 85% car. And I'm probably like an 8 out of 10 driver. <laughs> okay. But that still doesn't get us to the front of the field. That's still, there's more room that we can be, number one, me as a driver, I can get better. And then number two, our equipment can get better as well. All right, last question. And I really appreciate how generous you've been with your time. This has been a lot of fun. Yeah. Uh, They want to know what influence Talladega Nights had on your career, how it impacted your decision to be a race car driver. Uh, Did did, did you watch that and it it move you at all? Uh, you know, the thing for me was how big and nice was really entertaining and funny. And I, I already wanted to be a NASCAR driver before any of that kind of came out. Yeah. Uh, the movie that really made me think it was cool was Days of Thunder. Yeah. With, yeah. with Tom Cruise and Robert Duvall back in the 90s. Nicole Kidman. That, yeah. Yeah, that that was my movie. Uh, that was like my influential movie. Uh, Talladega Nights, more than anything, has just been fun because I think it was more commonly known to so many people. But it also created a real stereotype <laughs> for everybody in NASCAR that we've kind of had to fight back on. Now, do we laugh with the jokes and, and you know, shake and bake and, you know, I'm on fire, Ricky Bobby and everything else? Yeah, absolutely. We laugh at it. We can laugh at ourselves a little bit, tongue in cheek. Um, and I hope it brought fans to the sport. And I actually think, you know, interesting point here, Neil, I think we probably need another movie. I feel like it's probably about time for a NASCAR movie. Like, over the last few years, right, there's been Rush, which is really cool. Uh, last year, there was Ford versus Ferrari. I think it's time NASCAR got another movie going. Uh, maybe that can, can stir up a little bit of uh, emotion and, and get more people to the sport. Along the lines of that movie, my uh, my friend Wes Blankenship on Twitter, yesterday he had pulled out a scene. Remember when I... Uh, 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 Ricky Bobby and, and his wife, and I guess they'd split because she was now with Cal, and yes. uh, he's living with this mama, and, and his boys are out in the yard, and they're running around and harassing the old man, and they're saying anarchy, anarchy, <laughs> spraying with a hose, yeah. and oh, saying yeah. it's just gonna get worse, old man. <laughs> he said, "Who would have thought that they were they were foretelling 2020?" <laughs> 
basically nailed it. Basically yeah. nailed it. Yeah, I said, yeah, who would have ever thought that that would be considered? Look, it's, it's been just as weird for me as it's been for everybody else. Yeah. Well, listen, really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. This was a lot of fun, and uh, good luck the rest of the circuit. Hopefully some fans will be out there soon to see you guys, and uh, it'll start uh, getting back to normal for you and getting back to normal for all of us because I think that's the one thing we all sort of miss is just normal. But really enjoyed this. This was a lot of fun. Thanks. Good. Yeah, thanks, Neil. Appreciate you having me on. Appreciate you. Take care. Thanks again to Tommy Joe Martins for his time today on the Oxford Exxon podcast. I hope you guys enjoyed that interview as much as I did. That was a lot of fun to do. Um, Sometimes for someone like me doing interviews about a sport that you don't really know that much about can be a little intimidating, a little daunting, and uh, he took all of that uh, intimidation away. That was a lot of fun. So hopefully we'll get him back on at some point in the summer after the NASCAR circuit and the Xfinity circuit has uh, gotten back to normal and, and getting going again. We are uh, we're going to talk to Ryan Brown of WJOX in Birmingham. You guys remember Ryan, been part of the our podcast network for a long time. So we're going to have him on uh, Wednesday's show. Not else, not sure what else will be on Wednesday's show. We're working on some different things. Uh, we will also have a live show on Thursday night, working on another couple of shows for later in the week as well. Um, so going, I'm going to talk to Maddie Lee. Uh, he's Chanel covers the uh, Chicago Cubs for NBC Sports in Chicago. She covered the Oklahoma City Thunder for uh, the the Oklahoman most recently. Before that, she was covering Ole Miss for the Clarion Ledger. So uh, we'll talk to her as well. So um, really have a lot of things kind of lined up for you over the course of this week. Have a uh, soft verbal coming your way uh, later in the week as well. I expect Ole Miss is going to land a football commitment tomorrow. Probably talk some Major League Baseball draft stuff with Chase on Thursday night show the MLB draft starts tomorrow night. I know there's a lot of uh interest here with what happens with uh Tyler Keenum, what happens with Anthony Servidio's five round draft as Major League Baseball commits suicide here uh, right in front of our eyes during a pandemic and a um trying time in our country's history. A Major League Baseball seems somewhat tone deaf to it. There's going to be a season. I think it's going to be a short season. It's going to be a season with great acrimony between uh, the owners and the players. What that means for uh, the college draft, the high school draft, the amateur draft, what it means for college players remains to be seen. A lot of uh, players are going to lose opportunities. There's going to be a temptation for a lot of players, I think, to stay in college an extra year. Of course, what the gamble there is that they're gambling that there will be money this time a year from now. And I'm not sure that that will be the case either. So it's a fascinating time for baseball from the professional level all the way down into the high school ranks, frankly, into the the, the uh, sort of travel circuit ranks as a lot of guys who have looked forward to a big bonus check for being a, a high draft choice. I'm not sure those are going to be in the cards here in the next uh, 12 to 13 months. But anyway, we'll get to that later in the week. We'll talk college football and more with Ryan Brown tomorrow on the Oxford Exxon podcast. Hope you enjoyed our visit with Tommy Joe Martins today. Until tomorrow, stay safe out there, take care, and we'll talk to you again soon.